Vision, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Please relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Nick Evershed. On this edition we'll feature nanotechnology, a science pub crawl, and we'll answer the question, can scientists dance? First up, here's the news with Mark West and Ian Wolfe. Everyone knows the overlap between music and science, but what's dance got to do with science? The 2009 American Association for the Advancement of Science Science Dance Contest is just around the corner, so if you're a scientist with a deep longing to express your innermost scientific thoughts through dance, then this is for you. The contest is open to anyone who has, or is pursuing, a PhD in any scientific field. What you need to do is, one... Make a video of your own PhD dance. Two, post the video on YouTube. And three, email your name, the title of your thesis, and the video link to gonzo at aaas.org by the 16th of November, 2008. On the 17th of November, a total of four winners will be chosen for the following categories, graduate student, postdoc, professor, and popular choice. If you're lucky enough to win one of these categories, you will need to provide a single peer-reviewed research article on which you are a co-author. You will be paired with a professional choreographer, and over the following weeks, you will help your choreographer understand the article, but only via email and telephone. Then the four choreographers will collaborate to create a single four-part dance based on the winning research articles. You will then be an honoured guest at the AAAS annual meeting in Chicago, Illinois, where, on the 13th of February 2009, you will have front row seats to the world debut of the output called This Is Science. Accommodation in Chicago will be provided and grants are available for travel expenses. To read more about last year's competition, see Science Magazine and gonzolabs.org. A trigger for brain plasticity has been identified. Researchers have long been looking for a factor that could trigger the brain's ability to learn and maybe recapture the sponge-like quality of childhood. In the August 8th issue of the journal Cell, neuroscientists at Children's Hospital Boston report that they've identified just such a factor, a protein called OTX2. OTX2 helps a key type of cell in the cortex to mature, initiating a critical period, a window of heightened brain plasticity, when the brain can readily make new connections and learn easily. The work was done in a mouse model of the visual system, a classic model for understanding how the brain sets up its wiring in response to input from the outside world. Takeo Hench, PhD of the Neurobiology Program and Department of Neurology at the Children's Hospital, Boston, found that brain cells that switch on critical periods in the visual system, parvalbumin cells, don't actually make OTX2 themselves. Instead, the OTX2 is sent by the retina. In essence, the eye is telling the brain that the eyes are ready and seeing properly, and it's time to rewire. In the current study, Hench and colleagues demonstrated that when mice are reared in the dark, that's getting no visual input at all, OTX remains in the retina. 
Only when the mice received full visual input in the light did OTX begin to appear in the cortex, and only then did parvalbumin cells start to mature. In other experiments, the researchers injected OTX2 directly into the cortex. The parvalbumin cells matured, even when the mice were kept in the dark. Finally, when OTX synthesis was blocked in the eye, parvalbumin cell functions failed to mature. Schizophrenia is a brain disorder where parvalbumin cells don't properly mature in the brain. Dr. Hench speculates that OTX may be used in the future, perhaps in the form of eye drops, to treat schizophrenia. Michael Ford, Head of Department of Physics and Advanced Materials at UTS and Associate Director of the Institute of Nanoscale Technology, talks with Ian Wolfe about the movement of electrons in matter and how computational nanophysics lets you create a material tailored to behave any way you like. I'm Mike Ford. I am Head of Department of Physics and Advanced Materials and also Associate Director of the Institute for Nanoscale Technology. So I'm a physicist, basically. And as a physicist, and as a nanoscale physicist, I believe you've got a strong interest in the movement of electrons in matter. Yeah, that's what's really tied together all of the research that I've done. But, you know, over the course of too many years to remember, (laughs) I've moved a lot from being originally an experimental atomic physicist, which is where my PhD lies, through to a computational nanophysicist, if you like, in the last five years, But throughout that, the common thread has really been what do electrons do in materials? And the reason you want to know that is quite simple. If you can work that out, then you can work out any property of a material that you choose. So what colour it is, whether it conducts electricity, what useful kind of properties it might have that we can exploit. Once you can answer those kinds of questions, then obviously you know everything about it, really, in a sense. So the behaviour of matter is all down to how the electrons behave. Yeah, pretty much, absolutely. Uh, The properties of matter on the scale that we generally deal with it is almost entirely due to the electrons. The nuclei, the central core of the atom, really plays very minor role at that kind of scale other than attracting the charge of the electrons and keeping them in place, essentially. But, you know, that's all a part of what we try to understand. So... Experimental physics is obviously Mm. doing the experiments. What's computational Mm. physics? At one level, it's doing experiments, but actually doing experiments on computers. So what you're trying to do is experiments that you simply can't do in real life. And obviously, to do an experiment where you actually watch how individual electrons are moving or even how individual atoms are moving in a material is pretty much impossible. It can be done, but it's pretty much impossible. So you can do computer experiments and then you can understand these properties and these types of behaviours. That's one level. Another level, of course, is to really try and develop some very fundamental understanding of how these things behave. You do calculations to try and help us to interpret the results of experiments. So, for example, scanning, tunnelling microscope images can often be very difficult to work out what's going on. You can do a calculation, you can combine the experiment and the calculation. It gives you a great deal of insight into what's actually going on in the thing that you're looking at. So when you say the images are hard to interpret, so they're not like 
images you get from an ordinary light microscope. No, absolutely not. The trouble with an STM is you can see things, but you don't know what those things are chemically. So you can see lumps on a surface, for example, but mm-hmm. you don't necessarily know whether those are copper atoms or silicon atoms or whatever. And so you can do calculations and you can try and understand those types of things and you can compare your calculated and measured image and get a much better understanding of what's actually happening. Right. Are you looking at materials that you already have to find out how they work or are you also looking at how to make new materials? Yeah, both. Both. We One part of it is to look at materials we've already made. So we do obviously a lot of work, as I said, with scanning tunneling microscopy and we try and understand what the hell is going on in some of their images. So these might be, for example, molecular layers on gold surfaces. We also do a lot of work in trying to create new materials. So, for example, we might think that we want to create a metal with a particular optical property for a particular application and that might be an alloy metallic alloy it may maybe doesn't exist or that property is not known so we do the calculation see if it has the right kinds of properties and if it does then we make it right so it's sort of like reverse engineering in a way because you're working out what you want what your ideal material would have all these properties yep and then you work with your calculations back to say well this is the type of materials we need to make to get that property absolutely right and this is one of the big dreams of the kind of area that i'm in in computational materials physics the really big dream at the end point is to have a software program where you just simply say exactly what properties you want and nothing else and it will design the material for you and come up with the optimum material with those properties now at the moment we have to do a fair amount of searching and try different materials until we get the right properties but you'd like to do as you say the complete reverse engineering cycle Mm. just type in a few words and it designs your material for you and then you go and make it that's the dream but that's obviously quite a long way off really so what sort of applications are you looking at at the moment? Um, we have a range. Um, most of the work within the Institute is centred around things like coatings for windows that have very interesting infrared blocking capabilities. So you can put these coatings on windows in hot climates and they help you to reduce the load on air conditioning. So they obviously have clear energy efficiency type of applications. We do a lot of work with the MAU as well. And the MAU stands for? The Microstructural Analysis Unit. So that's our electron microscope unit here at UTS, basically. That's really one of the centrepieces of the experimental facilities that we have where we do pretty much all of our experimental work, so all of our imaging and, and so forth. And they're interested in materials that can be used for lighting, So currently we use either incandescent lamps, which are really bad news basically because they generate a lot of heat, very inefficient, or you use fluorescent tubes, these compact fluorescent tubes. They're problematic because they can turn mercury. The next generation or or what is going to be the, you know, the the next generation of energy efficient sustainable lighting is is light emitting diodes. And so the MAU is involved in a program looking at zinc oxide as a potential material for making light-emitting diodes. And we're starting to do some calculations with them and try to understand these materials a bit better. And again, to help us try and design the best types of materials for these kinds of applications. So the materials that stop infrared going in, I presume they allow visible light to go through. Yeah, that's right. So you're saying basically you've got windows that let the light through, but not as much of the heat. Yep, that's the idea. If you can, well, for example, you can already use, if you use a very thin layer of gold, uh, if you go to the CSRO buildings in Linfield, 
for example, all the windows are gold because they've got about a 30 or so nanometer coating of gold on the outside. And gold is good because it reflects everything uh, above about 500 or so nanometers, longer in wavelength than 500 nanometers. Everything shorter wavelength goes straight through. So it blocks the red part of the spectrum and out into the infrared, but lets through the blue and the green. The idea is to push that reflection edge such that all of the visible light comes through and all of the infrared is blocked. And the idea is to try and design coatings that give you those properties. And that's what Mike Corti is, is very much interested in as well. And the Institute has been interested in this for some time. So you might use nanoparticles of gold where you can change their optical properties and get this kind of interesting coatings where they block the infrared only. How does having gold mm. nanoparticles yeah. help you change the optical properties? Uh, well, there are many ways you can work it, but the simplest way, the way that we've been most interested in, is to exploit what's called the plasmon resonance. So ah. very small metallic nanostructures, very small metallic particles, have a very interesting property that they absorb light very, very strongly over limited wavelengths. And exactly where they absorb in the spectrum depends upon a bit upon their size, quite a lot upon their material... But if you keep the same material and change the shape, you can move the absorption peak around pretty much to anywhere you want. So people now know that, for example, if you make gold nanorods and you change the length to width ratio, then the absorption peak shifts out into the infrared very, very strongly and you can basically tailor the absorption properties of the materials quite easily. Wow. So controlling the sides and controlling the shape yeah. controls how it behaves towards light. Absolutely, and that's what's interesting because most conventional colouring is done by adding dyes, right? So all the clothes you're wearing, all the printed posters and carpets and everything in this room is probably coloured using a dye, and you have a different dye for every colour. However, if you do this size thing, you can create different colours just by changing the shape, which is a really interesting and fascinating idea because it's exactly the same material, but by virtue of its shape, it behaves in an entirely different way. Now, that has obvious applications, window coatings, etc., etc. But I think also, just from purely a scientific point of view, that's a really interesting phenomenon. That's something that's really, I think, worth investigating in more detail, which Absolutely. is what we do. Terrific. So what's the big challenge for you? The big challenge for me, for my research particularly, the really big challenge is that all of these things we've been talking about they're nanostructures, and so they involve typically um, pieces of material that contain 100,000, a million atoms. And we've got to do calculations on all of those 100,000 million atoms. And that's a very, very challenging problem. And up until recently, really, the state of the art, the absolute state of the art, was being able to do the t- kinds of calculations we do on maybe 1,000 atoms at most. So we've just developed a bunch of techniques that allow us to do 100,000 atoms. We'd like to keep pushing that to bigger and bigger systems and be able to do ever bigger calculations. That's really our long-term aims. That was Michael Ford, head of physics at UTS, talking about designing the properties of matter by controlling the size and shape of nanoparticles and the movement of electrons in matter. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, Diffusion at 2SER.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Who better to go on a pub crawl with than scientists? Mark West hit the streets of London looking for the most scientific pubs of England's capital. Hey, 
Last night, I went to the pub. Now, you may think that this is not exactly an unusual scenario. However, last night was different. Last night, I went on a tour of London science pubs. The pub crawl was held in association with the London Science Blogging Conference, which is being run for the first time this year. As a way of bonding us before the conference, which is being hosted by the Nature Network in collaboration with the Royal Institution, they thought they would take us out and fill us with pints of beer. The first pub we stopped at was the Jeremy Bentham pub. I chatted to Matt Brown, who is editor of the Nature Network, and was also our tour guide for the evening, about the first pub and what Jeremy Bentham had to do with science. Well, this one's a little tenuous. So, um, of all the four pubs we're going to tonight, this is perhaps the least scientific. Jeremy Bentham was a character from, I believe, the uh, 19th century who founded uh, University College London, uh, one of the major universities in London. Uh, he wasn't himself a scientist, but of course, UCL is very famous for the science that goes on there. Um, so, I thought we'd start there. It's a, it's, a nice, uh, it's a nice pub as well and a good place to, to, to meet. The second pub we went to was the Museum Tavern, is that right? Yes, that's correct. So the Museum Tavern is very close to the British Museum, which is world famous for all the artefacts from around the world that have been collected within its hallowed walls. Um, but that collection was actually started off by a, a chap called Hans Sloan, um, a Londoner uh, who was a big collector of things. He collected um, pottery fragments, uh, things from the Roman Empire, he also collected botanical specimens from around the world. I believe he, he spent some time in Jamaica, one of the first Westerners to fully explore um, that island. He brought back many, many uh, botanical samples from there and was actually one of the first people to introduce uh, the cocoa plant to the Western world. And we can thank him for milk chocolate. Uh, he, he developed the recipe that uh, mixed cocoa with milk to produce the wonderful Cadbury's dairy milk and other products are available, uh, types of chocolate that you get these days. Um, so his collections, as well as founding the, the British Museum, also largely contributed to the origins of the Natural History Museum, one of the world's most famous scientific museums. And his portrait hangs in that pub, and that's the connection. Again, slightly tenuous, but that's the theme for the evening. And what's the current pub we're at? We're now at the Ben Crouch Tavern. So um, this is a strange pub. It's kind of themed around horror movies and... Uh, Dracula and Frankenstein and things like that. So on the face of it, not the most scientific of venues. But if you dig a little, little bit beneath the surface, you do find some good connections here. So Ben Crouch, whom this, this pub is named after, was a body snatcher. So way back in the 17th century, 18th century, dead bodies were a commodity that um, scientists and physicians in particular wanted to get their hands on. They wanted to dissect human bodies to learn how the body worked, about uh, the physiology of humans. And grave robbers, people who would go around at night and dig up dead bodies, could make lots of money. They could make, make a, a killing, so to speak, from passing on these dead bodies that they dig up from graveyards and pass on to physicians. Ben Crouch was a famous, um, uh, a renowned body snatcher. I don't believe he was ever caught, uh, he, he, but he became famous as one of the pioneers and one of the greatest uh, body snatchers of them all. And this tavern has been named after him um, because it's, it's a chain of horror-themed pubs and they look for local uh, characters to name their taverns around. And they, 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 they settled on Ben Crouch as a, 
a good example. But also here, you get your drink served in test tubes, which is the other connection to science. So if you order one of the cocktails here, it comes in a little, co uh, a little test tube. So the chemists in the group are, are very happy with that at the moment. I think my drink, unfortunately, has been served in a pint glass, which means it's the, the fourth of the evening, which means when we go to the next pub, uh, it might be a bit, I might be a little bit worse for wear. Where, where are we off to next? Well, the next one is the real science. So the, the, the next one is um, the Jon Snow, no connection to the Channel 4 newsreader for, for, for the British uh, audience. Um, Jon Snow was um, a Victorian doctor who lived in the Soho area of London. And he had this, there was a big cholera epidemic in, I think it was the 1870s or 1880s. Lots of people around town in the thousands were dying of cholera. And nobody quite knew where this disease came from or what, what the cause of it was. And Jon Snow had this theory that it was a waterborne disease. It was drinking water um, that was causing people to, to catch the disease. And so he went to this... this in fact, he did the first um, kind of visualization of science. It's kind of like Google mapping that we do today, where he, he, he got all the locations of the people in Soho who had died of cholera, mapped them with crosses on a, a sort of early ordnance survey map of, of the area, and noticed that most of these crosses were falling around this particular pump, a water pump, in the middle of Soho. And so he theorized from this that, that the water pump was contaminated and this was the source of cholera. And so he went out and, and closed down this water pump. I can't remember exactly how he did it, but he closed it off somehow so nobody could draw water from it. And suddenly the cases of cholera in the area stopped. And this was some kind of proof towards the fact that it was the water in this pump that was causing cholera. And it, it, it was borne out. It, it turned out to be the case that um, the cholera uh, epidemic was spread by drinking foul uh, infected water. And nobody knew this before then. And there's a pub in Soho, which we're going to go to next, on the spot of this doctor's surgery, very close to the water pump, which he identified the cholera uh, disease in, uh, the pub is built on that premises. So it's very, very closely tied and named after the doctor who discovered this. Lisa, another girl here tonight, was telling me that the Jon Snow has very cheap drinks as well. Yes, it's uh, part of the Sam Smith's chain of pubs. I'm not being paid to say this for them, but a very fine chain of pubs. Um, where one of their selling factors, especially in a city like London, where, where drinks are very expensive, uh, they do keep their prices down. And I think you can get a decent pint in there for, for less than £2, which is very rare these days. Just what we need. So we're at the Museum Tavern. What has this got to do with science? According to Mr. Brown, our tour guide there, the founder of the British Museum, whose name escapes me, uh, when he donated his collection to the museum, it included a great deal of natural history materials, type specimens, samples from all over the world. Uh, the botanical part of that collection later formed the beginnings of the collection over at the Natural History Museum and uh, there are still quite a number of type specimens for species and things like that that were deposited at the British Museum. And so our listeners know, where can we find your blog? I'm at scienceblogs.com, the questionable authority. There you go.
Well, I'm Bob O'Hara. I blog on deep thoughts and silliness, which says it all, really. And I'm here to drink beer. So, Frank, you've left your choir practice to come here on a science tour of London pubs. What made you come and what have you found so far? What made me come? Well, Nature Network is a fantastic organisation. I've been along to quite a few of their pub meetings and they're always very sociable and lively. I'm going along to the conference on Saturday and I was hoping to do a bit more socialising here before the big event on Saturday. So how can we find you online? Uh, well, I'm on Nature Network. I've got a profile there. So go on there and search for Frank Norman and you'll find me in my blog. What do you, what do you blog about? Uh, well, I'm a librarian, so I, I try to blog on the interface between science and libraries. And uh, the title of it is Trading Knowledge. So I'm trying to pick the brains of scientists about what they want from libraries and perhaps I can give them a little enlightenment about what, what the real world of publishing and, and uh, publications is all about. Okay, so where, where are you a librarian at? I'm at the MRC National Institute for Medical Research in Mill Hill. And how long have you been blogging? Well, not very long, unfortunately. I just started the beginning of August. I've been thinking about it for about four months, thinking this is something I really have to do. I finally took the plans at the beginning of August. It's, it's the quiet season, so I thought a soft launch would be good. But... Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of ideas in there waiting to get out, but it's just finding the time is, is the hard thing. I, I'm full of admiration for the people that can put, post blog entries every day or several times a day. I don't know how they find the time. For me, writing is, is quite a slow process. Yes, well, they're unemployed, I think. I think that's where they get it from. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think it's everybody's dream to be able to make money out of blogging. Have you spoken to anybody famous? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Matt Brown, of course. Matt Brown, of course. And now you're speaking to Mark West. He's very famous. Oh, right. Yeah. Yes. Who's he? Yeah. Oh, is that you? Right. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> We're speaking to a girl scientist who has been sent here by donations from her readers this is something that I would like as well. She's been sent all the way from New York to London. Girl scientists, is there anything you would like to say to your readers? Thank you. You know, you were far more talkative just two seconds ago. <laughs> well, I think that thank you is just such a tiny way, a tiny thing to say for how I feel. I, I, I'm overwhelmed and overjoyed. What an experience. I'm so thrilled. This has been the best, I don't know if it's the best thing that's ever happened to me, but it ranks right up there. Well, there you have it. Science blogging, the best thing that can ever happen to you. And that was Mark West who managed to record that in between pints. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or praise, or if you'd like to contribute to Diffusion and hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio, then send an email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Mark West and Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER Sydney. 
Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Nick Evershed. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. And to take it out, it's A Series of Tubes by DJ Ted Stevens. It's not something that you just dump something on. It's not a big truck. It's a series of tubes.